Good morning, everyone. My name is Josh. Um, I'm one of the uh, elders here at Christchurch. Um, I'm going to talk us through that passage. Before we do that, why don't I pray for us? <clears throat> Living God, we um, turn to your word and we want to hear from you. So we pray that um, as we consider your word, as we uh, contemplate it this morning, we pray that you would be present. We pray that we would hear your voice speaking to us. We pray that you'd help us to listen and to take it to heart, the things that are said in this book. And we pray that you'd bless us as we do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this week, um, Karen, my wife, and I... Um, it's not three people, it's two people in case you don't know my wife. <laughs> um, we, we celebrated one year since we moved into um, our new house. And one of the things that has changed for us since we moved house was that we've got a garden now. So since the sun's been coming out, um, I've taken up gardening. Um, or if you actually saw how it worked, it's that Karen's doing the gardening. Um, and truth be told, I'm probably taken up cheering her on doing the gardening, uh, which is good to see. Because um, I must admit that I do find gardening a little bit um, frustrating and sometimes a bit discouraging. If any of you have ever tried planting um, strawberries or lettuce or tomatoes, you'll know that um, you're in it for the, the long haul. You're playing the long game with fruit and veg. I mean, I love the idea of growing um, my own fruits and vegetables, but um, I find it discouraging and frustrating sometimes. You, you plant a seed... And um, you water it, but nothing much happens um, for days and days and days. And you keep watering it. And eventually you do get a shoot. But where you planted one seed, you get uh, five or six shoots because weeds have started growing. And at that stage, you're not sure which one is which. You keep watering, you keep tending it. Eventually, the shoots grow into stalks. But I'm not very good at things. I don't know which stalks belong to the weeds, which ones belong to the, the strawberries that I'm trying to grow. Uh, and it doesn't really look as if it's growing right. I have no idea what to make of what I can see in front of me. Eventually, as the sun comes out and summer's around the corner, you see things starting to happen, and you see not strawberries but flowers. <laughs> I can't eat flowers with my cream. Um, I've been round our garden looking for signs of fruit and veg and just found weeds and leaves and flowers I find it frustrating and discouraging, and that makes me want to give up. And then, Karen walks around the garden with me. And she looks at the plants, and she can tell me what's really going on there. She can say, oh yes, no, that one's the weed, and that one's a strawberry. And don't worry, it's, it's not all going wrong. It is growing. And you can see the sign. The flower is the sign that you're going to get fruit. See, the middle of the flower is what develops into the fruit. In June, we're going to see that uh, blossom and that fruit will develop. And in July, we are going to see the final fruit on there. She then may show me the, um, the packet of seeds and she'll show me a, a picture of the full plant um, in full bloom with juicy, ripe strawberries on there. When I can see what is really going on and when I can see a picture of where it's all headed... Well, that helps me to keep going. The book of Revelation is written to uh, seven churches 
Some of them are facing um, frustration and discouragement. They probably struggle to make sense of the world around them. And some of these churches are battered by the weeds of persecution. Some of the churches, though, aren't struggling at all. Um, They've managed to sidestep the struggle by being lukewarm and indifferent. But like me in the garden, what is going to help these churches is if they find out what's, what's really going on behind the scenes. If they can find out what God is really doing, and if they can see a picture of where everything is headed, well, that's going to help them to keep going. This book of Revelation in front of us was written to seven churches, but it is also here for churches just like ours, and Christians like me and you. Do you ever find it frustrating and discouraging living as a Christian? Do you ever struggle to make sense of the world we live in? This morning we woke up to news of another senseless attack, this time in London. On my way to work on Wednesday, I had to walk past a house where the night before three people had been murdered. Perhaps you're not facing the the same sort of direct persecution as some of these churches, but you still live in a world where, uh, which makes no sense, which gets you fearful and confused. It may be that you're the other kind, or that you'd be belong in the other kind of church. It may be that you're not finding it hard to live as a Christian in our world because you know it's going to be hard, so you sidestep the struggle and blend in with the world around you. Keep quiet about your faith, shut your eyes to the atrocities, and keep moving. Maybe you're not finding it tough because it's easy to be indifferent. Well, just like with my strawberry plants, if you could see today, if you could see what is really going on behind the scenes, if you could see what God is doing in our world right now, and if you could see that picture of the end where it's all headed, well, that would strengthen you to live in a fearful and confusing world. That would give you the confidence in frightening times. It'd give you the assurance that you need to be able to step out and be distinctive, to to face the struggle, to take the risks and to live and speak for Jesus. And I can say that because in today's passage, we can see what is going on. We get to see what God is doing in the world right now, and we get to see the picture of where everything is headed. And when we get to view the earth from Revelation 7's perspective, it's going to give us the perspective that we need to keep going, to face a fearful and confusing world, even to be willing to endure and to endure suffering for the sake of Christ. So Revelation 7, it starts with a vision of earth. It's showing us what is going on on earth that we otherwise wouldn't be aware of. And it's showing us firstly... That earth is not home. Earth is not home. Look down with me at verses 1 to 3. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. 
Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Talk about giving a perspective on something that we wouldn't otherwise be aware of. Uh, The Bible here is saying that when heaven looks at earth, it sees a planet on the brink. Life is not sailing along serenely here on earth from heaven's point of view. Uh, There are angels At the four corners of the globe, holding back winds that are ready to burst forward. There are angels poised to bring harm on the land, on the sea, on all of creation. And they would be doing that if it wasn't for this warning to delay. In in war zones, sometimes we hear about periods of a a ceasefire. Not a a full peace agreement, um, not an end to the war, but we hear of maybe uh, three or four days where there's a window uh, where both sides agree to stop fighting so that refugees can flee and escape. Don't you find it absolutely mind-boggling that when heaven looks at earth, it sees us in this momentary window of pause before God wraps things up once and for all. That's what's happening here in these verses. God is holding back the final judgment. And there's a a pause now while the world is on the brink. Hard to believe? I don't know. I I don't think the church in Smyrna would have had so much trouble believing it. When they were being slandered and undermined and imprisoned and tortured and killed, I think it certainly would have felt like a planet on the brink to those Christians. And to the majority of Christians in our world, even today, in Nigeria, in Egypt, the Philippines, it may well be quite evident that this world is not home for Christians. The question for churches like Smyrna and for lots of Christians worldwide, actually, is is why doesn't God bring an end to it all, actually? In chapter 6, the chapter just before this, we hear the voices of martyrs who've been killed for their faith. And they are asking the question, the second question on that screen there, how long, God, how long, Lord, until you judge the inhabitants of earth and avenge our blood? The question really is not, why would God bring these winds to judge the earth? The question is, why is he delaying? Well, look at verse 3. Here's why God is holding back. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. The answer here to these questions is God is acting in our world. What's going on behind the scenes in our confusing world is God is acting and he's acting to save. This ceasefire, this momentary window, as the angels hold back the winds, this is the time when God is sealing. He's setting aside, he's marking out those whose home is not earth, but who are destined for somewhere else. And then John hears the number of those sealed. It's 144,000. Perhaps you've, this is maybe the first time that you've read this number, perhaps it's a little bit shocking to you that it says in the Bible that 144,000 people are sealed. This is the verse that uh, Jehovah's Witnesses and certain Christians will use to prove that the Bible teaches that only 144,000 people are going to be saved. 
It's one of the most hotly debated verses in the whole of the Bible, in the whole of history. And it's just worth saying that lots of Christians do take this number to be a literal number. But I think there's very good reasons to see this number as figurative rather than literal. Because we know that we like round numbers, don't we? We know that numbers convey not just a literal quantity, but a meaning and a sense. I've told you a thousand times to turn that light off. I'm coming. I'll be there in one second. Recently, we gave a prize to Christchurch Liverpool's 1,000th Twitter follower. Why 1,000, you might ask? Is there some special meaning to 1,000? Is, is that a significant number for the life of Christchurch? Well, no, we like the round number, don't we? 999 Twitter followers just doesn't sound quite right. It's, it's fallen short. It's not quite the full number. 999. No, no, we want 1,000. In Jewish thinking... That nice, complete, round number is 12. 12 stands for completeness. It means nothing's missing. So the fact that the number that John hears is 12 times 12 means it's the roundest of round numbers. It's the most complete of complete numbers. And the fact that it's 12 times 12, 144, times 1,000 means it's the largest complete number. This number in Revelation 7 is giving God's people the assurance that God is not missing anyone out when he's saving. And the fact that there is a breakdown of these 12 tribes of Israel shows that God knows exactly who it is who belongs to him. And he knows exactly where they're from. So in the midst of the ceasefire, the answer to the question, is God really doing anything, is yes. God is at work personally saving and sealing every last one of his people. The answer to how long, God, before you do act finally and definitively, the answer is, well, he won't let those winds burst forth until he has saved each individual person in his plan and marked them with a a seal to guarantee that they are going to come through the coming judgment. Let's go back to my strawberries. There are stalks, there are leaves, uh, there's weeds, but there's no strawberries. I'm thinking everything is going wrong. I'm on the verge of giving up. But it really helps to know that behind the scenes, things are growing. I can't see it, uh, but it hasn't all gone wrong. Actually, it's all going to plan. Revelation 7 contains a message for Christians that no matter how bad things look, no matter how many times we wake up to news that there has been some terrible act of violence on our doorstep, God is at work and he's saving and he's sealing. But that means that earth is not home for those people who he seals. Now, for the struggling churches... Uh, in Smyrna and Pergamum, who were on that map before, that would be a great encouragement. If you're a Christian today, buffeted by abuse and intimidation or discrimination, you're sealed for another place. Use that assurance to help you endure. But for the complacent churches in places like Sardis and Laodicea, other churches on that map, then to hear that earth is not our home is quite a wake-up call. 
For the indifferent Christian, for the lukewarm Christian, you're sealed for another place. So don't let this temporary home be all that fills your vision. The thing is, earth is not home, but earth is where you are. Earth is where you are. There's a tension in this passage uh, that although God is at work saving and sealing, the people he does seal do remain on earth. Uh, John's vision moves on. He sees uh, those who were sealed on earth present in heaven. Uh, And in verse 13, he has a curious little dialogue with this elder in heaven. The elder says to him, who are these people? And John says, well, you know. And the elder says to him, well, these are those who've come out of the great tribulation. Notice how the elder describes where they've come from. He says they've come out of the great tribulation. Listen, a ceasefire is not a safe place to be. There are still danger zones and landmines. And being sealed for heaven doesn't mean you'll escape the tribulation on earth. Being sealed is not the same as being removed. For the sealed believer, earth is not home, but earth is where you are, is where you remain for now. And if you're sealed for heaven, you're living life out on earth, and in the midst of the problems and the great tribulation and the pain, you probably won't feel sealed. Just like I become discouraged and frustrated with growing my plants, you might be discouraged and frustrated that life here on earth is where you are, and so it means you're facing suspicion or uh, prejudice for the things you believe. You're facing fear. You're facing illness. You're facing doubt. You don't feel sealed at all. You don't feel marked out by God. You don't feel numbered. You don't feel saved. Well, if Revelation chapter 7 has shown us first that God is at work, things aren't all going wrong, well, then it also shows you that even if you don't feel sealed, you are. Along with the encouragement and the wake-up call in this passage, there's the assurance, a real assurance. Yesterday, um, I went to to London on a train. And you know when that, that moment where you're stopped at a train station... And you're sitting there, you're looking out the window, and there's another train pulls up alongside you. And then you look out the window, and one of the two trains is moving, but you're not sure which. <laughs> the other train is moving, and you think, oh, we're going already. Or maybe it's the train is, is passing you. It's moving the same direction. You think, we're going backwards. We've only just arrived. And you're confused for a moment. It's in that moment that, well, you either get sick, <laughs> or you need to turn your eyes to... An an immovable reference point, something that's not moving, so that you can see what is really going on. And when you see the roofs in the distance not moving, you can tell yourself that although it feels like I'm going backwards, the truth is I'm actually stopped. Revelation 7 uh, gives Christians that reference point, that unmoving reference point uh, that tells you what is true, even if you don't feel it. Earth is where you are, and so you are going to experience this great tribulation where the scent of sickness 
and the stench of death overshadow you. The effect of war and terror are going to creep closer to home. The shouts and clamor of people opposed to the gospel will bring intimidation. But this vision gives us the reference point that no matter how bad things look, if you're sealed, you're safe, even if you don't feel like it. But this comes home most gloriously in the third thing that this shows is in the next verses where we find heaven is yours. Heaven is yours. In verse 9, John turns his gaze from the sealed on earth to the saved in heaven. Look with me at verses 9 and 10. After this, I looked. And there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes. They were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. John has just seen a vision of earth. And he's heard the number that represents the complete number of those saved. But now he gets to see the reality with his own eyes. 144,000 represents a complete number, but now he's shown what the complete number looks like. And it's a multitude that you can't get your head around. It's more than you can count. And it's not just from the 12 tribes of Israel. It's from every tribe, every language, every people, every nation. The heavenly reality behind John's vision of earth, oh, it's far greater and more glorious than these symbols on earth reveal. And those who are sealed are found standing in the majestic throne room of the be-all and end-all. They're standing in pure white robes. They're singing the new song of heaven, and they're singing praises to God and to the Lamb who saves If you read on into verses 11 and 12, you'll find that their praise prompts the angels in heaven to fall down and worship too. Perhaps as you read this, you are thinking that this is the picture of what the end of all things will be. What if I told you that this isn't strictly a future reality? What if I told you that this is a present reality? Because if John is given a vision of a present reality in heaven, then you can be encouraged that although you don't feel glorious right now, although you don't feel pure and spotless and white, although you don't feel like you're standing before God's throne, if you're sealed, you're already saved. You are clothed in white, and your worship can be heard in the throne room of heaven today. And when you do that, it will prompt the angels in heaven to fall down on their faces and give glory to God. That's what's going on here. Back to my garden. When I'm despairing that I haven't got my strawberries, Karine comes along and she assures me they are planted. But not only that. They are there. Uh, They're not going to be added later on. They are there within the plant. They're there kind of behind the scenes, growing and developing. We don't see the full fruit of it right now. 
but they are there, behind the scenes developing. John's vision is given to the churches, and it's given to us to say that when you're tempted to doubt, when the great tribulation, the pain of living in our world, makes you frustrated and discouraged, although it doesn't feel like you're sealed, the present reality is that you are. You are saved. To put it another way, although earth is where you are, heaven is yours, and heaven is yours now. Okay, you're not physically before God's throne right now, but you've got access to it. You're not in a multitude that no one can count from every tribe and language and nation, but you are here at Christchurch Liverpool in a multitude from many tribes and many languages and many nations. You can't see it yet, but you are clothed in white. You have been saved and your worship does get to be heard before the throne of God. What a vision. What a truth to remember when life is tough. This is the encouragement and this is the privilege of those people who are sealed. Uh, But the elder in verse 13 asks an interesting question. It's a curious dialogue. I mentioned that before. Uh, Verse 13, he says, who are these people? Who are the sealed? I've mentioned this morning some things that are visible and some things that are invisible. And the seal on your forehead is invisible. We can't see. So can we know who is sealed? Can we know if I'm sealed? Well, though the seal is not visible, God has given us a visible, tangible mark in baptism. When Junio and Christine and Ella are baptized, that's going to be a visible sign that we as a church believe that they are already sealed. It's not because... Uh, sorry, guys, it's not because we think you're good people. It's not because uh, you've earned God's seal of approval. It's because, verse 14, you have confessed to washing your robes and making them white in the blood of the Lamb. That's the criteria that tells us if somebody is sealed. That's the criteria on which we baptize and we do the outward sign. It is a weird picture, I know. How can washing something in blood make it white? But throughout Revelation, we're always told that the lamb, who is a picture of the historical man, Jesus Christ, the lamb was killed. He was killed with a purpose to bring God's enemies into a right standing with God. You see, we naturally stand before God in dirty robes. And when those winds that are being held back when they burst forth, well, we just deserve to be facing the full force of God's judgment. But Jesus, the lamb, was killed. And when he was killed, he faced the winds. He faced the full force of God's judgment. And we are invited to stand under the shelter of his judgment-bearing death. That's what it means to wash your robes in his blood. It's to say, I believe that this blood took the judgment I deserved. And if I rely on this blood, I get to stand before God in a pure, white, clean robe. That's 
what Junior, Christine, and Ella will declare the moment before they're baptized, that they trust solely in Jesus' death. And that is why we believe that they are sealed. And that's why we're going to do the visible sign of baptizing them. Can I just say to you today, if you're here and you're, you're not a Christian, that that invitation to come and wash your robes, it still stands. In fact, God is holding back the winds to give a window where you can accept that invitation. By truly believing that Jesus' death took God's judgment on your behalf, by, by relying on that, by staking your life on that, well, you'll be sealed invisibly. If that is an invitation you want to accept, then do speak with myself or anyone who's been up the front today, or just simply speak to the person who brought you along. And if you do want to rely on Jesus and say that you have washed your robes in his blood and his death, then heaven is yours. Today, you will be standing clothed in a white robe before God's throne in heaven. And today, because of what you do, the angels in heaven will bow down on their faces before God in worship. Heaven is yours. But it is true that this experience of this reality now is only the bud of the final flowering of God's plan for his sealed ones. One day, heaven will be yours, and it will feel like it. You will see it with your own eyes. There will be a day where you stand before the throne of God, and you serve him day and night in his temple, and he who sits on the throne will shelter you with his presence. Never again will you hunger. Never again will you thirst. The sun will not beat down on you, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be your shepherd. He will lead you to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from your eyes. To help you endure and overcome while remaining here on earth. Every Christian needs to see this picture. The picture of what things will be like in the end. Heaven is yours. Do you long to find satisfaction? Well, one day, you will never hunger, you'll never thirst, you will be perfectly satisfied. Do you long for peace and rest? Heaven is yours. One day, the Lamb will forever shepherd and shelter you, giving you perfect peace and rest. Do, do you feel sad? One day, God will wipe away every tear from your eyes. What a difference knowing this is going to make when, like the church in Smyrna, you feel poor, when you feel intimidated, when you feel disheartened, when you feel like giving up. Heaven is yours. Heaven is yours now, and you have a shepherd now who leads you and protects you. And one day, you, well, you have a God who one day will wipe away every tear from your eyes. So be strengthened and be encouraged. What a difference knowing this will make when, like the church in Laodicea, you just feel lukewarm, when you just feel indifferent. Well, one day you will stand before God's throne singing praises, but heaven is yours now. 
You are sealed, you're guaranteed, you're assured, you're saved. Today you're clothed in white and you have access to the throne room of heaven. So sing, sing with joy. Rouse your heart, raise your temperature and get a taste of heaven on earth now as you worship. So let's do that right now. Let's live out on earth here now the heavenly reality that we look forward to but that we also participate in now. In a small multitude, in people from many languages and tribes and nations, as people clothed in white robes, let's stand and let's sing of our salvation and our hope.